Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Good News Gathering. My name is Annie Rankin, and I serve in the ushering ministry. Uh, with me are Jeff, our teaching pastor, and JD, our operations administrator. Today, we're beginning two weeks of Q&A. If this is your first time at G&G, over the past few weeks, people in our church family have been encouraged to send in any questions they might have about the Bible, our beliefs, and how we apply what we believe to daily life. Our focus verse for these lessons is 2 Timothy 2.15, and let's all recite it together. Here we go. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Here at G&G, we believe that the Bible is the word of truth. That's why when we have questions about the world in which we live or how we should live out our lives, we begin not with our ideas and opinions, but with the word of truth. So, let's dive right into the questions. Why is our world becoming more and more dark every day? Shootings, killings, terrorism. All right, let me give you the short answer in one very simple biblical word, and that word is sin. Sin is why there are shootings and killings and terrorism. Sin is why there is genocide and human trafficking. Sin is also why there is gossip, grudge-holding, lying, adultery, you name it. So what is sin, and why does it drive the evil that we see in the world around us and the evil that we see in ourselves? At its core, sin is this. All sin violates who God is. It violates who God is. The Bible tells us that God is love. That is his character. So the sum of all the commands that we receive from God is love. When we sin, we reject God and his love, and we put ourselves in the place of God. Remember, the temptation that Adam and Eve faced in the Garden of Eden, it was the temptation to be like God, to make their own rules, to live as they pleased to do what they wanted to do. And the Bible tells us that when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. And it's true, we've all, we've all sinned. Just like Adam and Eve, we've all had that choice to obey or disobey. And at various times in our lives, we have chosen to disobey, to put ourselves in place of God. And sin always brings a death, a death of some kind. But there's hope. And the Bible tells us this. It says, for the wages of sin is death. Now that's bad news. That's bad news. We've all sinned. We're all all deserving of death. And as unpleasant and unpopular as it may be, we have to grasp the bad news. But there's good news. The Bible goes on to say, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. In other words, God loved us because that is his character. He loved us so much that he sent his son to die on a cross 
paying the penalty of the death we deserved so that we could have eternal life. Now, it's important to understand that some might disagree or argue with the first part of that question. Why is the world becoming more and more dark every day? Some would argue that since sin entered the human condition, the world has always been dark. The only difference is that with the advances of, in technology, mankind is capable of mass evil on a much larger scale today than ever before in history. And there is no question that we just emerged from the bloodiest century in human history, the 20th century. And when you think about it, even Jesus painted a rather bleak picture of the world as it nears the end. The Bible tells us this. It says, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what they were specifically referring to at that moment was a statement that Jesus had just made about the temple in Jerusalem. And he said, there will come a day when not one stone will be left on top of another. The temple would be destroyed. That was unthinkable for a Jew. But he goes on to say this. They, 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 they said, tell us when this will happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Apparently they thought that when the temple of Jerusalem was destroyed, Jesus would be coming back very soon or simultaneously with that event. The temple actually was destroyed 40 years after Jesus left the earth. But when Jesus answered the question, notice what he says. He says, watch out that no one deceives you For many will come in my name claiming, I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. In other words, when Jesus is about to come back, there will be many people who claim to be the Messiah. There will be false prophets, there will be imposters, and many people will follow them. He goes on to say this, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. In other words, hopes for peace on earth, any kind of utopia of human origin, the idea that civilization can be perfected without God, those, those hopes are false. That will not happen. He said there will be wars and rumors of wars. And then he said, then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. In other words, Christians are and will continue to be persecuted somewhere on earth until Christ returns. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. Many will abandon the faith, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. In other words, love without God will not last. It will grow cold. But he ends with a hopeful note. He says, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. In other words, there are those that will stand firm to the end. And you see, as Christians, the reality of a dark world does not discourage us. It shouldn't. We don't adopt a fatalistic attitude. We don't, we don't become negative. We don't cower in, you know, in a church and, and, and try to avoid life because we're afraid of what's going on around us. That's not what we do. 
You see, we know the bad news about sin, and we have no illusions about mankind achieving perfection without God. But we also know the good news of God's love and the power of the resurrection. And so we live with an unyielding hope and assurance of heaven and a determination to reach as many people as we can with the good news of Jesus Christ. In John 3, 5, Jesus says, You must be born of water and the Spirit. What does that mean? Okay, so this is one of those questions um, that requires some biblical interpretation. In other words, you have to read the passage, and you have to you have to interpret it. You have to figure out what it means. And I want to let you know right up front that my goal uh, with this question is not actually to answer it for you, okay? My goal is to tell you some of the different perspectives that people have about this passage um, in, in order to show you what different interpretations are so that you can begin to, to learn that people approach Scripture in different ways and come to different conclusions and that some of those interpretations might be better and some of those interpretations are worse. All right, so we're going to kind of look at that today. Um, what I want to do is, is start by giving you the context of this particular question. So there was a Pharisee, a man by the name of Nicodemus, this is John chapter 3, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council known as the Sanhedrin. And he comes to Jesus at night. And he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. In other words, he comes to Jesus at night, and he's saying, okay, there's no way that you're doing all this stuff and that, God, that, that God's not with you. It's not possible for you to heal all these people and to teach the way you teach. I, And so I wanted to get to know you. I want to to get to know your message. And Jesus just goes straight at it. He doesn't even let him get time to answer the question. He just jumps in, assumes the question, and and then calls Nicodemus to a very challenging truth. He says, very truly, I tell you, Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Unless they're born again. And immediately Nicodemus does what most of us do. Because we, we, we approach a passage like that and we're like, hey, we've all already been born. We're already alive. We've already kind of come out into the world. <laughs> How could we be born again? How could we possibly be physically born again? And Jesus' answer lets, lets us know that he's, he's not talking about that. Nicodemus, no, you're not going to go climb back into mommy and get born again. Right? Here's what you need to know. Jesus says, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of the water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. So what does he mean? Now, over the centuries, Christian teachers have long wrestled with this, and and several different interpretations have been postulated. And what I want to do is I just want to clear up up front, everyone who's really interpreting this passage in any kind of uh, let me use the word orthodox way. Any, any kind of classically Christian individual interpreting this passage deals with spirit as in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in your heart and life at the point of conversion. Everybody acknowledges that. The question is really what does Jesus mean by the water? And there are a few different interpretations. The first one is that Jesus means baptism and spiritual indwelling. So in other words, the water means baptism and the, the spirit means the spiritual indwelling that happens at the point of your conversion. Some scholars believe that baptism is either the time at which you are saved, 
not necessarily the means, but the time at which a person is saved, or the time at which a person is indwelled by the Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit comes upon an individual at the point of their baptism. And they, do, they, they believe this because of passages like Acts 2.38, which says, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, so they argue that baptism is the point at which an individual receives the Holy Spirit. Further argument for this perspective is based on the fact that the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus at the point of his baptism. Or that's very graphically depicted in the Gospels. And so those that hold to this perspective believe that one must be baptized and indwelled by the Spirit to be part of the kingdom of heaven. Other scholars disagree. And they, they see problems with the baptism perspective. They're like, well, what about the thief on the cross who didn't have time to get baptized? What about all those Old Testament figures that didn't get baptized? What about children who, you know, die before, before they ever reach physical maturity? How, how, can, how can that happen for them? Well, there's, 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 different, there's a different perspective. There's multiple other perspectives. One is that what Jesus was referring to was physical birth and spiritual indwelling. In other words, when Jesus was saying you have to be born of water and the Spirit, what he means is that you have to be physically alive through the natural birth process. In other words, you have to be a living human being. Right? It's basically what this perspective holds. And that, that the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you at the point of your conversion, and baptism is just a symbolic public declaration, but nothing more. So for this particular commentator that I was reading, um, when Jesus said born of water, it means nothing more than being a living human being. And when you're reborn by the Spirit, you're reborn spiritually. Now, I'll be honest. This is me personally speaking. I'm speaking for nobody else. I think this perspective is pretty weak. And let me explain why. We can assume that the only people that Jesus was trying to save were people who were already alive. Is that a fair assumption? Everybody that Jesus wanted to save was living Right? So it seems somewhat redundant for Jesus to say, well, you must be born of water. Okay, um, that's literally every person who's ever lived except Adam. Right? It seems kind of redundant to say, you must be born of water and spirit when everybody's already been born of water if all he meant was the physical birth process. Do you see what I mean? There, there, are, some, there are different interpretations, and some may strike somebody as making a whole lot of sense, and this one strikes me as being a little bit weak. Right? If all Jesus meant by the term water was physical birth, then why would he have even bothered saying water? Because everybody's been born by water. All right? Another perspective that I think has a lot more merit than the last one, this, again, that's me speaking personally, is that what Jesus meant was a spiritual cleansing that happens just before the Holy Spirit comes to live inside you. The main idea here is that the time of your conversion, the Holy Spirit kind of comes upon your life and performs a cleansing of your sins and a washing of renewal upon your heart and life and then comes to live inside you. Now, people who accept this view um, might look at, for, for instance, Titus 3.5, which says this, He saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth, and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. And what they, what they basically will say is that when Jesus said, um, you must be born of water, what, what he means is it, it almost kind of um, an, an analogy for this spiritual cleansing that happens that's done by the Holy Spirit. 
And now I think you'll find um, that both of the perspectives, um, the first one and the last one, at least have some very clear biblical merit when it comes to, there, there are other passages that kind of seem to support that idea. Um, one, I think, is honestly kind of weak. And again, that's kind of the point. It's important for all of us to understand when we're, when we're reading the Bible that people come to different interpretations about it. And it's our job as individual Christians to read the Bible, to seek to understand it, and to, to come to the very best understanding that we can have in the moment. Now, there may always be somebody else who comes along to teach us more that may challenge our particular belief at this moment, and we all ought to be open to God challenging what we think about a particular passage. All right, that's why I'm not going to tell you which one I think makes more sense because, honestly, these are challenging things. And the goal is not for us to say, hey, this is it and this is the only way it can be interpreted, but rather, hey, our job is to truly seek what God is trying to teach us and then to live that out. John 7.39 says, The Holy Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. What about verses in the Old Testament, like Exodus 31, 1 through 3, and Numbers 27, 18? Did the Holy Spirit indwell certain people in the Old Testament? How? Okay, at first blush, this appears to be an apparent contradiction in Scripture. And what I've done on the outline is I've listed the Scriptures that were mentioned by the person that posed this question. And John 7.39 indicates that the Holy Spirit would not be given until Jesus was glorified. And that, and that word glorified, you might circle that uh, on your outline, is a word that's used to mean the fulfillment of his mission on earth. His death, burial, resurrection, and his return to the right hand of the Father in heaven. That's, that's Jesus being glorified when he returned to the Father in heaven. Ten days after he ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit then came upon his followers and is now given to all who accept him as Savior and Lord. But what about passages like Exodus 31, 1 through 3, which indicates that a man named Bezalel was filled with the Spirit of God? This guy lived a thousand or fourteen hundred years actually before Christ. Or Numbers 27, 18, where Joshua, Moses' second in command, is described as a man in whom is the Spirit. I mean, he lived 1,400 years before Jesus. What about King David? Jesus himself, these are his words, described King David as, and I put two different translations so you get the sense here. He said... (laughs) David was speaking by the Holy Spirit or speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And David lived and died a thousand years before Jesus. So, how do we make sense of these passages that appear to be contradictions? Well, obviously the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, think Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit always existed. We know that. In fact, Genesis 1-2, the second verse in the Bible, refers to the Spirit of God at the beginning of creation. It's also clear, as the question correctly points out, that the Spirit was given to certain individuals in the Old Testament prior to Jesus coming to the earth. 
So what most scholars believe is that the availability of the Holy Spirit to all believers came only after Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Okay? So there is no contradiction. There's just an expansion of the Holy Spirit's work from particular individuals to all of Christ's followers. On the night before he died, you may remember, Jesus promised that after he went away, he would send a counselor, or depending on your translation, a comforter, who would dwell within them and guide them into all truth. That's the Holy Spirit. And now everyone who accepts Jesus as Savior and Lord receives the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This, and the way to think of this, is this is the the presence of the living Christ residing in us, empowering us to be and to do what Christ is calling us to be and to do. He is at work, not in just a select few as in the Old Testament, but in all who have accepted Christ. There's an old hymn that that we used to sing when I was young. I haven't sung it probably 40 or 50 years now. But it's a hymn called Spirit of the Living God. And it says this. It says, Spirit of the Living God, fall fresh on me. And then it goes on to say, it says, melt me, mold me, fill me, use me. In other words, melt me, burn away my impurities. Mold me into the likeness of Christ. Fill me with God's love so that things like anger and hate and bitterness and negativity simply can't get in. And use me to impact others with God's truth and grace. That, friends, is the work of the Holy Spirit in all of us. And it should fill us with a sense of hope and peace as we face life. Will Jewish people... They only believe in the Old Testament, and divorced people be in heaven. So when I first read this question, I thought, wow, that is a fascinating combination. (laughs) Jewish people and divorced people. Very specific. Um, um, I think think the short answer is yes, there will be some Jewish people and some divorced people in heaven. but uh, let, me, let me show my work here a little bit. <laughs> um, short answer is yes. Um, long answer to come. Um, so let's begin where we should always begin, and that's the Bible. And what I want to do is walk you through three verses that I think give a very clear snapshot of what it means to be saved by the teaching of the New Testament. All right, I think these three verses give a very clear indication of what the whole New Testament teaches about how to be saved, i.e., how to, how to be assured of the fact that you're going to go to heaven. Okay? So check this out. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 9. For it is by grace, circle that word, it is by grace you have been saved, circle this phrase, through faith. Right? It is by grace you have been saved through faith. In other words, your salvation, your entrance into heaven is by the grace of God through the faith that you have in Jesus Christ. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, circle this phrase, not by works, so that no one can boast. Hear me very clearly. The teaching of the New Testament is that good people do not go to heaven. Okay? 
Hear me clearly on this. Good people don't get into heaven. Number one, because biblically speaking, good people don't exist. Just read Psalm 53 if you want proof, right? But secondarily, right, the only people that get saved are saved by grace through faith in Christ, not by their works. So our good works don't earn us heaven. Nobody will get to heaven because they earned it. Nobody will get to heaven because they were good enough. There is no such thing as a good person who gets into heaven. Please, please hear me clearly on this. If we, if we stumble on this point, we will misunderstand so much of what the New Testament teaches us about salvation. Secondly, John 3.16, famous verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, circle this phrase, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So our belief, our faith, our trust in Christ is what allows us to access the grace of God. And finally, Jesus answered in John 14, 6. This is as clear as it could possibly be. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So based on these passages, right, and these passages, I believe, are representative of what the whole New Testament teaches about salvation, all right, here's what we can know for sure. Those saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ will be in heaven, all right? We can know this for sure. Those who are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ will be in heaven, Anyone who has accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, as their Lord, and are living their lives to please and honor Him have no need to worry about whether or not they will be in heaven. We can be confident of this. Anyone who has a real, genuine passion for Jesus Christ will be saved by God's grace and will be in heaven. But let's drill down on this a little bit further, right? What this means is that no one's heritage gets them in or keeps them out if they have genuine faith, right? Whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, whether you are a slave or free, whether you are white or black or American or Asian or anything else, the reality is your heritage does not get you in and your heritage does not keep you out. Right? The, the, the fact that you were born in America doesn't get you in. The fact that you were born as a Jew doesn't keep you out, and vice versa. Right? In the Old Testament, God had chosen the people of Israel to reveal him to the world. Right? Now, many Jews at this time believed that, that simply because they were descended from Abraham, they were descended from the Jewish um, ethnic group, so to speak, that they were going to be saved no matter what. And the Bible clearly doesn't teach that. Paul says this in Romans 9, Not all who were born to the nation of Israel are truly the members of God's people. In other words, he was assuming, even of his own people, that there were some who were not saved, even from the Jews. So, if you were born a Jewish person, but have come to faith in Christ Jesus, then you should feel safe that you're likely going to go to heaven. All right? But there's a second bit of good news implied by the passages above. Not only does your heritage not get you in, nor does it keep you out, no one's good works or sinful past gets them in or keeps them out. It's all a matter of our faith. 
You see, the Ephesians passage cited above clearly states that our good works don't save us. But it also means that our bad works, if we have faith in Christ, don't keep us out. They don't disqualify us from being in heaven just because we've done bad things, just because we've sinned. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This means there will be plenty of people in heaven who sinned in all kinds of awful ways. Right? Our sins don't prevent us from being in heaven as long as we have that genuine faith in Christ. Now, let me say a word specifically to divorced people in the room. I'm not exactly why the, sure why the person who asked this question picked that group in particular, other than perhaps the fact that God very clearly in his, in his word does indicate that he hates divorce. I mean, that, that phrase is in there, I hate divorce, God speaking. So maybe, maybe the question for that individual is, well, well does, does that disqualify me from, from salvation? The answer is no. If you have a genuine faith in Christ, what has happened in your past is just that. It's in the past. Some people get divorced for fault really not their own. Somebody just chooses to leave them. Right? That happens in life. Right? The, the reality that... that the reality is that doesn't make a person disqualified from, from entrance into heaven. So we can feel very confident that, that those who have faith in Christ, regardless of their sinful past, are not necessarily disqualified. I will say this, though. These passages very clearly teach that those who knowingly reject faith in Jesus Christ will not be in heaven. Those who knowingly reject faith in Jesus Christ will not be in heaven. Those who knowingly have heard about Christ, have been exposed to his message, and have rejected that, have no reason to be confident in being in heaven. Now, why do I say that? Well, first and foremost, remember, our good works have nothing to do with it. So there is no such thing, biblically biblically speaking, as a good person who rejected Jesus. Now, I'm sorry, because I know that hurts my heart to say it out loud, and I know that for some of you that probably doesn't sit very well. But the reality is, from a biblical standpoint, there is no such thing as a good person who has rejected Christ. Okay? And the reality is, we will all stand before God in judgment for rejecting Jesus. And those who knowingly have done so, perhaps followed some other religious system, or chosen to just reject religion and Jesus altogether... Such individuals will have no reason to be confident that they will be in heaven. This does, however, beg another question. Right? It begs a different question. What about all those people that never heard? What about all those people that that never met Jesus or haven't heard of Jesus or lived before Jesus or lived in a region of the world where Christianity didn't or even still to this day doesn't exist? What about all those folks? Well, the Bible actually gives us some pretty clear teaching on this. It's in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2. And in Romans chapter 1, it makes it very clear that even those who have never heard about Jesus know there is a God. Everyone knows about God. Well, you say, how? How can everybody know about God? Everyone knows about God through creation and through conscience. The simple reality of creation shows that there is a God. There must be something bigger than this world to have made this world. 
Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that, circle this phrase, so that people are without excuse. The fact that you are alive and capable of understanding the world in which we live means that we do not have an excuse for going, well, I didn't know there was a God. Yeah, you did. Because this world exists, and it's obvious that somebody made it. But secondly, God has created us with a conscience that allows us to understand the difference between right and wrong. In Romans chapter 2, Paul goes on this this long discussion about Gentiles, people who didn't even have the Old Testament law. And he says this, it's kind of right there in the middle of that passage. He says, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required of the law. In other words, they do the right thing just because they know it, not because it's the law. They just know that they shouldn't kill people, or they just know they shouldn't rape somebody, or they just know they shouldn't steal from somebody. When they do, when they live in accordance with that law inside themselves, they show that they have a conscience that's implanted there by God. And so the reality is there is no one in this world who has ever lived that has ever lived without at least that much light. Everyone has at least that much light that God has to exist because of creation and something bigger than me has to exist because I inherently know certain differences between right and wrong. Everybody has that much light. And so the question is, what happens to those people who never explicitly heard about Jesus? And there are typically two perspectives. One, and I'm going to be very quick about this, is known as the available light perspective. The available light perspective. In other words, all of us have creation and all of us have conscience. Not all of us have heard about Jesus. Right? And so those who believe in the available light perspective believe that God is willing to save some who simply respond to the light that's available to them. In other words, they acknowledge that there must be a God and they are trying to live faithfully in accordance with that God that they know must exist because they see creation and the God that they know must exist because of the conscience inside of them and they try to live in accordance with that. That God may in his grace and through Jesus, not through some other religious system, let's be very clear about that, but God in his grace might apply the saving work to those who have never explicitly heard about Jesus because they responded to the light available to them. There's another perspective. And it's what I'm going to call the Jesus-only perspective. And there are a lot of Christians that believe this too. And, and what this perspective basically says is that God wants everyone to come into a specific knowledge and relationship with Jesus. And as such, if they respond to the available light, creation and conscience, then he will send them the necessary light for them to know Jesus. Um, Many, many people that believe in this perspective uh, look at, for instance, the example of Cornelius in the book of Acts. He's He's a Gentile, so he's not a Jewish person. He didn't grow up with the Jewish law, but he converted to Judaism after living there in, in Palestine for a while. And he wanted to know more of God, and he desired to know more of God, so he converted to Judaism, and God sent him Peter to tell him about Jesus. Right? And so people who believe in the Jesus-only perspective will say, no, like if you haven't heard of and accepted Jesus, no, you're not saved. But if you have responded to the light available to you, 
then God will make sure that you get Jesus. All right? What this means by inference is anyone who has never heard of Christ did not receive additional revelation because they didn't want it. And they didn't respond to the light that was available to them. All right, now let let me just say something. The reality is no scholar... And, and me sitting on this stage, very, let me be very honest, and I think Dad's probably in the same boat because we've had this conversation. The reality is who is saved and who is not saved is above our pay grade. Okay? I don't know who is saved and who is not. All right? But one thing I do know, there is not one person in this room who has sat through this lesson today that has not heard enough about Jesus to believe in him and accept him. If you choose to walk away from that today or any day, the reality is there's not a lot of clear teaching from Scripture that says you're going to be okay at the end. Okay? All of us in this room today have heard enough to place our faith in Jesus. I implore you, if you're willing, please do so. How do you make Jesus proud? How do you let your light shine seven days a week, not just on Sundays, and no matter who we are around? Okay, this is actually two questions that I combined. They're questions that were posed by by different people. But I put them together because, first of all, I just, I love the heart that prompted the question, how do you make Jesus proud? When Jesus told the parable of the master who gave his servants talents or sums of money and then he goes away on a journey and when and when he returns two of his servants have dealt very wisely with the talents or the money that the master has given them and and they've increased his wealth and the master when he comes back and and they they present to him what they've done with the money he he says well done good and faithful servant you have been faithful with a few things i will put you in charge of many things Come and share your master's happiness. And when I think of that story and when I think of what Christ has done for me and what he has given me, when I meet him face to face, I hope to hear him say those very words. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful. And I think that's in the heart of every Christ follower. I want him to look at me and say, all right, well done. The Apostle Paul wrote, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you, and circle these words if you would, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling. Live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. Now think about that phrase. Live a life worthy of the calling. What's the calling that those of us who call ourselves Christians have received? The calling God has placed on our lives is really very clear, and you find it in Romans 8, 29, which says this, (laughs) For from the beginning, God decided that those who came to him should become like his son. As Christians, that is our calling, to become like Jesus, God's son, to become over time more and more like him in our attitudes, our words, and our actions. And that's why I put these two questions together, because I think the answer to the first question is, I believe, found in the second question. To make Jesus proud, to let your light shine seven days a week, 
not just on Sundays and no matter who we're around. That's, that's how we make Jesus proud. And some of you are thinking, but, but how? How am I going to do that? I'm flawed. I'm imperfect. I'm a sinful human being, and, and, and that's true. We all are. None of us will achieve sinless perfection in this life. But we can live a life worthy of the calling that we've received. Otherwise, God would never have inspired the Apostle Paul to write that in Scripture. So how do we do that? First of all, stay focused on Christ. He's the one that we model ourselves after. His love for others, his his willingness to serve, his, his desire to reach people far from God. Model yourself on him. Secondly, when you fall, and you will, seek forgiveness. J.D. just read that passage a moment ago, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us. So when we fall, seek forgiveness. And then thirdly, Remember the power you've been given. Don't forget that you're not alone in this. This is not about you just striving to be better. As I said earlier, when we accept Christ, the Holy Spirit begins to dwell in us. So we operate not under our own power, but in the power of God. In fact, Paul says it this way. In Ephesians 1, he said... I pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. You see, you and I have resurrection power. Not just on Sunday, but seven days a week. We have that. And why do we hide our light when we're around certain people? Why do we do that? Think of it this way. The next time you're around somebody who, for whatever reason, causes you to want to hide your light, ask yourself this. Has this person raised from the dead? If they haven't, they don't have the power you have. So what are you afraid of? You have resurrection power. So let your light shine. When people ask for help, at what point is it okay to say no? When do you cross the line between helping and enabling? Okay, I think this is a really important question. Um, Because it happens, um, especially for Christians, I think this is a really important question to deal with. How do we know when we're helping? And how do we know when we're enabling? And is it important at times to say no? I think, I think the answer there is yes. We should be saying no. And probably sometimes we should be saying no more than we are. Um, because, because the reality is uh, the Bible has some pretty clear teaching about what is and is not helpful. <laughs> and, and, and so I want to I I kind of wind through some of that real quick. Um, for the purposes of, of this, this particular point, though, I, I think that... Uh, a wise man once said, a problem well-defined is half-solved. Okay, so I'm, I want to define our terms a little bit. Let's start with helping. Here's how I'm going to define helping today. It's assisting others with what they cannot do for themselves 
Assisting others with what they cannot do for themselves or maybe by themselves or maybe for or by themselves right now. Okay? When you and I make the decision to help somebody, we have already made the mental calculation that either they can't do it on their own or that something we have or something about us could be helpful to them in the process. We've already done that when we decide to help. All right? We have something to offer that's a value. And in those situations, the Bible is very clear that Christians are supposed to be helpers of those who need help. All right, 1 John 3.17 says, If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can the love of God be in that person? All right, in other words, the implication is very clear. Christians who have means ought to be able and willing to help those who don't in situations where they are in need of our assistance and in those situations where God prompts us to help. Jesus, these are the very words of Jesus in Matthew 5.42. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So, so the implication is clear. All right, we are called to be helpers. And, and if, if that's what helping is, assisting others with what they cannot do for or by themselves, then, then we ought to do that. But let's define enabling very clearly as well. Right? Enabling is doing for others what they can be reasonably expected to do for themselves. Enabling is doing for others. You see the difference? Assisting with versus doing for. Right? In Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, it says this, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please the flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit will, please, will from the Spirit reap eternal life. There are times and situations where people ask us to do things for them, and our doing it will prevent them from taking responsibility for that which they are responsible. Okay? We must, from a biblical standpoint, be careful of saving people from the natural consequences of their choices. So very quickly, let me give you some action steps, all right? When you're considering whether a particular action might be helping or enabling, ask yourself and, and remember the following things, do the following things. First and foremost, remember that suffering isn't always the person's biggest problem. Remember that the suffering that that individual may be going through at this particular moment is not necessarily their biggest problem. Now, this is hard for us as Christians, and it's hard for us to watch people suffer, right? It's hard for us to allow them to suffer. But sometimes it's what's necessary. The Bible is very clear that God sometimes allows and even at points causes inflicts upon a particular individual a certain amount of suffering so that they will change. We should be very wary of trying to step in and save them from the consequences that God has allowed to, them to experience. All right. Secondly, take the time to pray. Take the time to pray. Many of us, sometimes people will come up and they'll ask us, hey, can you help me with this? Or can you give me some money for that? Or can you do this? Can you do that? And, and we'll feel this inordinate pressure to answer right this second because they're standing right there. Right? It's totally okay for you to leave that person standing on your doorstep saying, I need five minutes to go sit on the couch and pray. If you don't mind, I'll be right back. But, like, I could, 
you can do that. It's okay for you to say, I need a minute. You don't have to answer right now. Because in prayer, we have access to the wisdom and the knowledge of God that we may or may not have access to just in and of ourselves. It's unwise to make a snap decision about whether or not to step into somebody else's problems. We need to do that thoughtfully, we need to do that reasonably, and we need to do it in a situation in which we're actually helping, not removing from them the responsibility of their choices. Finally, ask yourself this question. Can I reasonably expect them to do this for themselves? Can I reasonably expect them to do this for themselves? And if I can, stay out of the way. Okay. Now, final question. God says, honor your father and mother, Exodus twenty twelve. How do you set healthy boundaries as an adult without them feeling disrespected? Okay. That's awkward. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> I can answer this. <laughs> <laughs> Not on your life. <laughs> I'm so okay. good at it. <laughs> you, uh, you have to remember the context for the giving of the Ten Commandments, okay? God was establishing the nation of Israel. And the Ten Commandments were foundational instructions for how the Israelites were to relate to God. That's the... Commandments 1 through 4, and then how to relate to others. That's Commandments 5 through 10. And these commandments establish the ground rules for acknowledging God as the creator and the father of the nation and for the formation of an ordered society. So the first commandment was this. You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, God is supreme. He's supreme. So the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, assumes that parents are also under the authority of God. In other words, parents should not ask children to do anything that would violate God's ultimate authority. It's off limits. Jesus made this point brutally clear when he said, anyone who loves his father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. So there is a hierarchy of authority. God is first, parents are second. This eliminates certain questions that I've been asked before. Like, if my dad tells me to steal, should I obey? Says, obey your, you know, honor your father and mother. Well, no. He's asking you to violate the eighth commandment, which was, thou shalt not steal. Or, Jeff, I'm 16 and I'm pregnant. And my parents are pushing me to get an abortion. Should I obey them? No. This violates the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not murder. God is supreme. His authority takes priority over parents. Now the Bible also recognizes that the parent-child relationship does change over time. My relationship with J.D. and Reed is a whole lot different now than when they were children living in my home. When they were kids, they were expected to obey. And there were consequences when they didn't. But when they became adults and they moved out on their own, they were no longer under my direct authority. My role shifted 
from authority figure to influencer or advisor. And when J.D. married, my role shifted again because the Bible is very clear about the marital relationship. In Genesis 2, the Bible tells us that the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That is why a man, circle this phrase, leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Again, there is a hierarchy. God is still supreme, followed by the marital relationship and then the parental relationship. Okay? So for parents of adult children who are on their own, let me give you a couple pieces of advice. First of all, you are now in an advisory role. Be careful about giving advice unless they ask for it. The fact that your children will always be your children does not give you the right to try and micromanage their lives. Okay. Secondly, parents of adult children who are on their own, be very wary of doing anything that might drive a wedge between your child and their spouse. Stay out of that. Now, obviously, I'm not talking about situations involving abuse or danger to your child. Okay? Obviously. Now... As an adult child, how do you set healthy boundaries without your parents feeling disrespected? Remember the fifth commandment says, honor your father and mother. And that word honor means to show courtesy and respect. Show your parents courtesy and respect. Be courteous to them. Be polite. Don't speak badly about them or disrespectfully to them. Don't do that. Make sure that the boundaries that you do set are God-honoring. Okay? Listen to them. Hear them out. And adult children, be very careful. Okay? I'm going <laughs> to say this. Be very careful about filling your parents in on the faults of your spouse. Okay? Don't do that. Because you'll kiss and make up, and they won't forget it. All right? So your best bet is if you're struggling with your spouse, talk to a wise Christian that is not a relative. You put your parents in a very bad position when you do that, and it creates a bad dynamic when they're around your spouse. Okay? When you have to disagree with your parents, disagree without being disrespectful. But if you do need to disagree, stand your ground. All right? If you put God first and you do your very best to honor your parents with courtesy and respect, you can't always guarantee how they will respond. If they feel disrespected and you've done your very best, 
to show them respect and courtesy, then it's kind of on them. All right? Guys, we're going to... We're going to pray, and then the band's going to come out for one more song. We're at time, though, so if, if you need to, to leave um, as the band comes out to do their last song, that you can do that. Um, but we're going to worship a little bit more. Um, thank you guys very much for, for your participation. We're going to do this again next week, so we're excited about uh, getting to dive into some other questions that you guys asked, and you're asking really good questions. And one of the cool things that we can say honestly is that, is that you, you, guys are, you guys are digging into the Word. That's very clear. And, and we're really proud of that as a church family, that people are diving into the Word, they're asking mature questions, and they're seeking godly wisdom. That's, that's what we ought to do as Christians. And so I want to encourage you. I'm going to pray, and then the band's going to come play one more song for us. God, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for all that you've given us. We thank you for your, your kindness to us and your love for us. We ask that you would, you would help us to be the kind of people that would truly search your Word, that would, that would look at it, that would listen to it, that would read it, that would search for the meaning that we can find. Because the reality, Father, is that we have all been called to be followers of yours. We've all been called to be well-informed and thoughtful about what your word says to us. And Father, I just ask, I just ask that you would help us to be people that seek you for the answers to our questions know we will find the right answers and the best answers if we come to the one who has all the answers. We love you. We trust you. In Jesus' name we pray.